you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. For those of you that are visiting with us, especially to all of our Dawson Music Academy uh, students and families of our students here, we are so thankful that you're here. My name is David Eldridge, and I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here uh, to Kimberly Jones. Thank you for your leadership of DMA, our Dawson Music Academy. Kimberly does a wonderful job, and I know she would love to talk to you about more information of this extension and ministry of our church. Last Sunday afternoon, we had over a thousand individuals, families, friends of our Dawson Music Academy students that were doing recitals all across our campus. And so I was blessed to be able to attend one of those and was so encouraged not only by the quality of musical instruction, not only the quality of the performances, but the depth of those children and just to be able to see them there and the relationships are being formed with the instructors and them and is just very, very encouraging. So Kimberly, thank you for your leadership and thank you for being here this morning. James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27. Have you ever audited a college class, ever audited a, a seminary class. We're coming to the end of Sanford semester, coming to the end of UAB semester, coming to the end of Beeson Divinity Schools semester, and it very well may be that you've been in a course, more likely that you've seen someone auditing the class. The, the way that goes is, is that person's in the class, he or she hears the lectures, he or she hears the classroom discussion, can, can participate in the classroom discussion, but when it comes to the cost of the class, in the sense of the, the cost of accountability of the class, they, they don't have to participate. So, so they're able, when the professor comes in and says, we've got a quiz this morning, and there are groans from all of the students in the classroom, the person that's audited in the class pulls out her cell phone and just looks at the notifications because they don't have the demands of the class. When all the rest of the class members are staying up late at night trying to put the finishing touches or maybe trying to start on that paper, uh, the person who's auditing the class sleeps soundly because the weight of the class is not upon them. They're hearers only of the information of the class without the cost of the demands of the class. In our section of scripture here this morning, found in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, it very well may be that verse 22 sums up the very essence of what we are called to be. We are not called as followers of Christ to be auditors only of his word, but we are called to be doers of his word. James 1, 22 reads, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, it's important to not take this passage out of context. Four verses previous to verse 22, we read, of his own will, the will of the Father, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth is the word of the gospel. It is the word that we are sinners. We've heard this in the beautiful testimonies of two that were baptized this morning, that we are sinners in need of a rescuer. That rescuer is the finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. 
And when he died upon the cross, he died a salvific death that was for your sins and for my sins. And when he was raised on the third day, he defeated death, sin, and Satan. And you, if you place your faith in him, you too can be brought forth by the word of truth. This is the gospel. Now, the gospel isn't just what saves us. But the gospel is what sanctifies us. That's a a word that is used to describe this is what shapes us in the journey of our Christian life. And it is ultimately what sustains us. So what does it look like that the gospel shapes us? What does the gospel do in your life and in my life as a believer? There are three implications of the gospel at work in your life from the passage of Scripture that we have before us. The first that I want you to see is that the gospel is at work in our conversations. Look with me at verses 19 and then verse 26. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Then verse 26, drawing upon this theme that James is going to come back to later on in this epistle, if anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is drawing upon the theme of the book of Proverbs, one of the major themes of the book of Proverbs. One verse gives us some kind of indication of what James might have at the forefront of his mind when he wrote these two verses. James, excuse me, Proverbs 10 verse 19 reads, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. There's a popular adage, maybe you've heard it, we all need to heed it. It is better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. You were created, I was created with two ears and one mouth. I know I am tempted sometimes to reverse what God has given me. I speak twice as much as I listen oftentimes. Have you ever done that? You guilty of that? Speaking three times as much as you listen, understanding that God has created us in a part of of honoring the person that we live with, that we work with, is to be better in our listening, to be able to, to thank God for the contribution that someone has, not always trying to think to ourselves as we're having a conversation, what can I do to get into this conversation, how can I interrupt this conversation, or even just instinctively going and, and saying, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but... Verse 26 extends extends upon this, expands upon this, saying that our speech is a window to our soul. The half-brother of James, Jesus Christ, would write in, or he would speak in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, this is strong words, that our speech is a window into our soul. So if out of our speech we find ourselves constantly moving to bitter sarcasm or to gossipy innuendo or slanderous accusations or filthy speech, it is an indication of what's inside of us. Now, I know a lot of us are tempted not to think this. A lot of us are tempted to think when circumstances squeeze us that actually what comes out is an anomaly. It's not who we are. But in actuality, what James is saying is is that when circumstances squeeze us, When life squeezes us, what comes out naturally is a window to your soul and to my soul. Next week is Mother's Day. I know many of you are thinking carefully, you know, I've got to get something. I've got to call 
Uh, many of you, Mother's Day has mixed feelings around it. Maybe your mother is in heaven and you thank God for her. Maybe there are other emotions tied to Mother's Day. But many people will give and receive uh, cards. They will give and receive candy. Maybe there's a, a box of Russell Stover's candy that you're going to give to your mother. I mean, it's just like, it's just this huge box. Those boxes come home sometimes to our house. And I love those boxes because those boxes have a map in the, the front of it, because not every piece of candy is worthy of consumption. Can we all agree upon that? Those assorted boxes of candy. I mean, could you imagine if you bit into one piece of candy and unknowingly to you, you bit into coconut-filled candy? Oh, I mean, it spoils lunch. Or, or worse than that, you bite into a piece of candy and the raspberry feeling. What raspberry? What, how does that get into that? So what do you do? Well, oftentimes when you have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 6-year-old like I do at my house, the maps are gone. The, the instructions there that have the precise uh, way that the candy is shaped, and it tells you where it's situated there. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to have a little bit of ingenuity when you can't find the map. So this is what you do. You get your fingers, you pick up the piece of candy, and you squeeze it, and whatever is inside comes out. Now listen, James is telling us here that our conversation is a window into our soul. And that when we're squeezed by circumstances, what comes forth is who we are. So James calls us to see that the gospel is at work in our conversation. But more than that, God, we discover from James's word here that the gospel is at work in our conduct. If I had a little bit more time, I would spend a good bit of time looking at verses 20 through 25. I'm going to summarize what James says here. In this section of scripture, he tells us that the gospel at work in our conduct is a cleansing work. In verse 21, he calls us to put away, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Not only do we see that it's a cleansing word, but we see it's a revealing word in verse 22. But be doers of the word, not only hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Notice in verse 23 the image that he draws forth. He says, what, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, in that first century world, mirrors were not as pristine and as clean as we have in our day and age, in which oftentimes they were polished metal that was rugged and it was rough, and so you looked into the mirror and it would distort your cheekbones. You would look into the mirror and you, your hairline would be messed up. It's almost looking into one of those funhouse mirrors at a fair. It distorts your shape because of the rugged contour of the mirror. We oftentimes don't look intently in the Word of God. We glance at what His Word says to us, not adequately seeing how it calls us to conform to His image and how far we are from His image. Notice that the gospel work in your conduct is a cleansing work, it is a revealing work, and it is a freeing work. In this passage here, verse 25 talks about the law of liberty, the perfect law, and it tells us that that law of liberty is one that sets us free, the law of liberty. This is the Old Testament law that has found its completion and culmination in Jesus Christ. There is, in our culture, a false misperception that a person 
who gives themselves to pleasure is actually free. That a person that has no authority other than themselves is actually free. But what we discover in our section of scripture this morning is, is to be free is to be a person who is under the total authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. What is freeing about being a slave to your ego? What is freeing about being a slave to your appetite and pleasures? What is freeing about being a slave to the applause of others in the workplace or in our community? The, the, the pathway to freedom is a pathway of being enslaved to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Notice that the gospel is at work in your conduct. The gospel, Christian, is at work in your conversation, and the gospel is at work in our concern. Verse 27 reads, Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Keep oneself, and keep oneself unstained from the world. It's the end of verse 27. In the Old Testament, especially the prophets, there was a call, this, this clarion call to care for the least of these in culture. Isaiah chapter 1 reads, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Now in James chapter 1 verse 27, you might be tempted to think that this is a full description of religion. Religion is only to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Well that's not the case. John Calvin is very, very helpful to us. James, he says, does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without these things, he mentions, is worthless. So James calls us as Christians to have a concern for the least of these. Now, in the first century world, he gives us these two examples, widows and orphans. Now, you need to understand there was no social Network. There was no social net to fall back on. There were no Christian organizations that were coming around widows and orphans. So to be a widow and orphan in the first century, not always, but oftentimes led one to slave labor or to prostitution. Now I can look around in our context here at Dawson and see many widows and widowers who have lost loved ones, spouses, and some Years ago, some decades ago, some even more recently, and this family of faith, even the Birmingham community, has great resources, oftentimes in and through churches and parachurch organizations, oftentimes through relationships, whether it's calls, cards, care, attention, meals. Many of you in this room maybe have been recipients of that firsthand. I can't help but to read this passage and come to this place where he talks about visiting orphans and, and think about the way this intersects with our 21st century world. The, the way it intersects with those who are abused or out of neglect or maybe addiction or even death or maybe just the inability financially, at just the results of a fallen world in which we live in, that there are children that do not have protection and the nurture and the care and the love of biological or adoptive or fostering families. And this hit me really personally this week as, as I, as a father of three boys, was coming home Tuesday night from a night at the ball fields. The games went late. It was about 9.30 when we left the fields. Danielle had our two oldest children. I had my youngest son, 
Jonathan, loaded him up in, in my vehicle, and off we go. He gets really quiet really quickly. I'm kind of thinking through this passage here. It was Tuesday night where I would go with it. It's a five-minute drive back to our house. By the time I get to the house, he, I mean, he is sound asleep at 9.45 on a Tuesday night. He's using the, the uh, seatbelt as, as a pillow as best that he can as a six-year-old. And what do I do? I do what I've done many, many times before with my two older sons and with him many times. I pick him up and I'm, I'm reminded, man, he's not a baby anymore. He's just this big kindergartner now. And I'm carrying him in and just the intimacy of his head upon my shoulders and just the love that I have for this kid that no one had to teach me, no one had to tell me to do this. It is just this natural connection as I'm carrying him up my front door steps. It dawns upon me how many six-year-olds in Birmingham don't have someone who picks them up out of the back seat when they fall asleep at 945 and carry them up the steps to a place that is safe and secure, and is stable, and they know without a shadow of a doubt that they are loved. How many six-year-olds? And as I felt just this natural overflow of my love for my own children, that love, and realizing what would it feel like for those other six-year-olds to not feel that assurance, not to feel that security, not to feel that stability, and it drove me to tears that night. And it should drive us as Christians to tears, but more than tears, it should drive us to care and to concern. The gospel at work in our hearts, it leads us to ask that question and to answer that question. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. We thank you that you, in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you desire to conform our conversations. You desire to conform our conduct. You desire to conform those that we show care and concern for. That as a believer, you always desire to move us away just from an interior focus of an individual Christian or even a church community, and you always are driving our attention outside of the walls, outside of our family units, looking for the least of these in our culture, in our community. Call us. May we listen carefully. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've heard the word of God spoken this morning with a clear culminating call upon your life and upon my life. But what we want to do is have 13 of our Dawson students to give you just, just a taste of the voices of those that we desire to represent today who, who need to be heard in our own backyard. Listen to their voices. Every day in the state of Alabama, nine children get into the foster care system. Each case is different, each, every situation is unique, but every child deserves to feel safe, secure, and feel loved. There's a perception that the foster kids, if they're not with their mother or father, that means that no one wanted them. 
and if no one wanted them, there must have been a reason. They were like, you're 16. You're going off to college in a couple of years. Why do you want a family? It's about my entire life. It's not just about my childhood. I want to know that I'm going to have a place to come home to during Christmas breaks. I want to know that I'm going to have a dad to walk me down the aisle, that I'm going to have grandparents for my children. I don't think people understand how it feels not being able to say mom and dad. When you're in the system, you don't get to say that very often. And if you do finally trust somebody enough to say that, who knows how long they'll be there. It's pretty scary to be a foster kid a lot of times. Foster children are some of the most vulnerable children out there. If people could truly love and care for the unlovable child, then maybe that child could become lovable too. We have feelings too. When you jump from foster home to foster home to foster home, if they just randomly move you like they did us, it throws you completely off. It's like as soon as you're feeling secure, then you're completely insecure again because you have no stability. When you have family, you have everything. Kids with parents are so lucky, and they should always remember that. Every time something happens at school, there's no one there. Other kids have parents or grandparents that are there for them. But for me, I really wish I had a family too. I wish I had someone with me through all this. You know, like a mentor for my entire life. I mean, I'm fine with all the changes that happen, like when I get a new social worker or change foster homes. But I never really met someone, someone who would stick with me my entire life. Faith can sometimes be a fragile thing, but faith is what keeps children going on. Faith that someone will take a chance on us, to see us the way God sees us, to love us the way God loves us. My foster family held on to me so tight. They showed me that I am not abandoned. They taught me that I am valued. They taught me that I am a child of God. They were a pure reflection of his unconditional love and acceptance. At six years old, I had convinced myself that I was unwanted, unlovable, and unworthy of love and being cared for. Foster care has given me a second chance, a chance to live the life that God intended for me. Although each one of my foster homes was completely different from the one before, they all shared one thing in common, love. Nothing will ever change the way I feel about my past. It's a part of my life, it affects me every day, and it will never be forgotten. You can never run away from the past, but you can run towards God. He knows our hearts, he knows our hopes, and he knows our dreams for a future. We want to hear, and our students here at Dawson have helped us hear the very voices of those who are in orphan care. We also want to hear a little bit more specifically today in response to God's Word in James chapter 1, verse 27. I have the great privilege of introducing to you Elise Vincent, who is a representative of the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. Elise, will you share just a little bit with our family of faith here who you are, your role, and your responsibility there? I am the Director of Social Services in our Birmingham office, and I oversee the growth and strengthening of our programs, also supervise all of our social workers, and oversee all of our foster care cases. And so I think what would be helpful to us, we've heard 13 just voices of those that are in our backyard, that's just a representative. We want to hear those voices. But I think it's helpful at times to see what is the need. So help us in Jefferson County, 
What does that need statistically in the state of Alabama? What does that need statistically? So statewide, there are 6,000 children in foster care. And here alone in Jefferson County, there are over 700 children. You know, and to me, as Elise says this, it just is staggering to me to look out and know many of you grew up in communities that the population was less than the entire population of those in need, in orphan care, in, in the whole state of Alabama. So that is a huge number to me, and it's something that uh, we need to pray about, and we need to be a part of what God would call us to as a family of faith and individually. And I think it might be helpful as we think of 6,000 and 700 here locally to hear a little bit of what that looks like. What is, what is one story in the sea of 700 or 6,000? Help, help us with that a little bit, Elise. So I want to share a story about a case that I was able to work on a couple of years ago. And we got a call from Jefferson County DHR, and the only information we were given was that there was a one-year-old boy and that he had been medically neglected and he needed a family who could um, take care of him and just kind of nourish him back to health. Um, and so when I walked into the room, I expected a one-year-old toddling child and I saw a frail tiny human who was still in an infant car seat and could barely get a bottle down. And he just had this bag of medication with him. And all of the medication was expired or spoiled. And we found out that he had a very serious heart condition. And he was very quickly approaching needing a heart transplant because his family was unable to uh, give him the proper nutrition and to give him his medicine correctly. Um, they loved him very much, but were intellectually disabled and just didn't have the skills that they needed to be able to get him to a healthy place. And so our foster family um, began to just go to tons of doctor's appointments and figure out what do we do to keep this child alive every single day right now. And at the children's home, our goal is to always protect, to nurture, and then to restore those children to their families. And in this child's situation, it would have been so easy to do the protecting and the nurturing of him because that came naturally to our foster family to keep this human alive. But it would have been easy to write their family off and just say, well, they can't do it, so they're not a part of this process and, and just to take over. But they came alongside that family and encouraged them and lifted them up and saw him through all the way to where he could go back home. And he is doing so well and thriving and continues to make just developmental leaps and bounds. That's powerful. One of the things I think is helpful, Elise, from your vantage point with Alabama Baptist Children's Home is you see individuals responding to this need in a variety of ways. You see families responding to this need in a variety of ways. And you see churches. So we want to have own ramps. We want to have own reps knowing that God is going to call individuals, families, and a church body in different ways. So help us get some kind of idea of what are some ways that those who are believers are coming alongside of this clear biblical call. Well, for individuals and families, you can be one of those frontline families who take a child into your home and do foster care and do respite care. Um, I know we have some younger people in the congregation, and so I want to encourage you that your age is not a problem. One of our um, most consistent donors is a high school student, 
and she um, makes bows and sells them and all of that money goes to the children's home. She's decided that she's passionate about foster care. So the things that you can do are endless as an individual and as a family. And, and church-wide, I think you're a step ahead of just being educated and knowing that there is a need in your community and there are foster families caring for these children every single day that may even be your neighbors. And I would just say, come alongside them. This is hard. Foster care is hard. We have to work within a broken system every single day. And so it's frustrating and they need time away and they need people to pray for them and to encourage them and just to support them through this journey. Elise has given us some ideas and we're so thankful for your work. Will you join me in thanking Elise for being here with us? Will you join me thanking Alabama Children's Home? We're thankful to have Billy Shepard with us as a representative of the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. We are also thankful to have Chip and Christy Coley that are here with us that are also representatives to my left and to your right. And I know they would desire to talk with you as long as also as Elise would. But as I'm going to ask Elise to pray for us as a congregation. But before she prays for us, I want you to take your together and I want you to open it up. And when you open it up, you will see a white insert that says, Everyday non-children enter foster care in Alabama. Everyday non-children enter into foster care in Alabama. They are two pathways. One is I'm interested in learning more about, and the other is I will pray for children in foster care. If you're a believer, can I just speak to you very frankly and very direct? Uh, there is a tendency to over-spiritualize things. God's word has spoken clearly. You do not have to pray. Is God calling me to participate in his plan for orphan care? You don't have to pray about that. The answer is yes. His word has spoken clearly. We are called. This is a part of our concern. Now, what we have to pray specifically about is how. Now, the how is something that the Holy Spirit will lead us to as a church, as individuals. But the call is there, and it is clear, and it is compelling in Scripture. So what we need to do is say, God, how will you lead us in this season of my life to respond to this need? These 700 that aren't years away from us, or excuse me, uh, hours away, but right here in our own backyard. So there are two on-ramps here. One is I'm interested in learning more about. So you're not, by filling this out or signing this, committing to doing this tomorrow. You're committing that you are open to learning more about. Notice the four options, orphan care, respite care training, being a mentor, being a court-appointed special advocate. Notice this final opportunity that you get to select, I will pray for children in foster care. In the center of your together, there is a uh, bulletin, ins or bulletin article that talks about a May 20th meeting that we're going to have with representatives from the Alabama Children's uh, Home, also Lifeline, and also DHS here in Jefferson County to just take that next step of being informed and praying very clearly, how do I respond not should I respond, but how should I respond? I'm going to ask Elise to pray for us in just a second. In the offering, we're going to ask that you complete this. 
that you check one of these. You can fold it. You can place it in the offering basket when it comes along. And then you will receive more information about that next step in being informed and that next step of praying through the answer to how. Elise, would you pray for our church and what God would do in us individually as families and as a family of faith? Lord, thank you for your love and your grace that you pour out on us every day. Lord, I thank you for the messages that you give us in Scripture, Lord, to move us to action. God, I pray that you would be with all of these individuals as they pray uh, for their self and for their family, that you would make clear the path that you would have them do as a family and to serve together. Lord, I pray that you would bless them along this journey and that you would bless them for their obedience. Amen. As we come to this time of response, we've given you an indication of how you can respond through filling this out and placing this in the offering plate. We'd be remiss because at the very heartbeat of what we're talking about is the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've trusted in the finished work of the gospel? We would love to have a conversation with you. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to respond by singing a song. At that time, we would love for you to come if you want to know more about what it means to place your faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've been visiting our church for weeks and months and years, and this is sort of a tipping point. God has called you to this congregation, and maybe you'll come forward and say, I want to unite with the Dawson family of faith. Maybe as we stand and as we respond by singing, they're just parts of your conversation. There's parts of your conduct that you just need to honestly confess before the Lord. And your invitation is to respond as you stand and as you sing. As John comes, our choir leads us. Will you stand and will you respond as God leads?